scripture reading this evening is John chapter 19, the first 30 verses. John 19, the first 30 verses. The text is verses 25 through 27. John chapter 19. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover, that means the preparation day, of the Passover week, preparing for the Sabbath day. So it was the day before the Sabbath day of the Passover week. And about the sixth hour, that's six o'clock in the morning, that's Roman time. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two other with him, on either side one, and Jesus in the middle, in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, amongst themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So far we read God's holy and infallible word. The text is verses 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, here in John chapter 19, we come across three of the seven of the crosswords of Jesus Christ. We come across the third crossword in verses 26 and 27, what we will be looking at tonight in the preaching. We come across the fifth crossword in verse 28, I thirst, and we come across the sixth crossword in verse 30, it is finished. As I said, there are seven crosswords, seven utterances Jesus speaks as he's hanging from the cross. The first three crosswords take place during the first three hours of Jesus hanging on the cross. First, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Second, he says to the penitent thief next to him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And then the third crossword, Jesus says to his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, Behold thy mother. Then you have the three hours of darkness, from noon, from high noon, until 3 p.m. 
At the end of those three hours of darkness, in the midst of the darkness, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the fourth crossword. Then the darkness lifts, and then the last three crosswords happen uh, in very close succession. First, Jesus says, I thirst. And he's given something to drink. Then he cries out with a loud voice, It is finished. And then he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he bows his head and gives up the ghost. The first three hours of Jesus hanging on the cross, you have Jesus' interaction with those around him. And the last three hours, you could say, describe Jesus' own personal suffering and then his interaction with God. This afternoon, we're going to focus on what happens before those three hours of darkness. We're going to focus on the last thing Jesus says before the darkness falls, his final words to his mother. This is a very sad and touching scene. What we have here is a dying man's final words to his mother. And what we have here is our dying Savior's words to his people. What we have here is our Savior severing the earthly ties that bind him to his mother. And what we have here is our Savior entering again into the fullness of all our sorrows, suffering from another perspective, in yet another peculiar way, suffering our sorrows that we deserve and suffering those sorrows in His own body and soul. And what we have here is our Savior willingly sacrificing everything, giving up everything in His entire life so that He might go the way of the cross. What we have here also is our Savior fulfilling all righteousness to save His people from their sins. And what we have here is also our Savior preparing His people for the new spiritual relationship that He will enjoy with them on the other side of the grave. All these things we'll see in the sermon. And what we have here is our Savior showing us that He understands very deeply and intimately the concept of family and family ties. We take as our theme, a heart that understands the concept of family. We look at that theme under three points. First, we look at painful sufferings. Second, we look at those striking words. And then third, we look at who Jesus is as our compassionate Savior. Before we get into the suffering itself, the painful suffering, let's get this scene before us. We're kind of jumping right into this whole passage. Remember, Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been brought back to Jerusalem. He's been tried before the Sanhedrin. And early in the morning, he is brought to be tried before Pontius Pilate. Pilate questions Jesus. He learns that Jesus is from Galilee. So he sends Jesus to Herod Antipas, King Herod, to be tried by him. Well, Herod mocks Jesus and then sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate declares Jesus to be innocent and wants to let him go. And he remembers that there's a custom at the time of the Passover feast to let a criminal go. And so he offers Jesus that he might be let go. Well, the chief priests and the elders stir up the people so that the people choose Barabbas over Jesus. But Pilate still wants to let Jesus go, so he offers to scourge Jesus and then let him go. 
So he whips Jesus. That's where we started our scripture reading. And his soldiers mock Jesus. Then he comes before the people and he tells them that he still sees no reason to crucify Jesus. But after a bit more confrontation with the mob, Pilate decides that it would be better to crucify Jesus than to get on bad terms with Caesar. And so he sends Jesus to be crucified. And Jesus is mocked some more by the soldiers. And then, surrounded by all kinds of people, some of them are weeping, some of them are mocking, Jesus is brought outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. And by the time Jesus is crucified, it is nine o'clock in the morning. As you know, the disciples had all forsaken Jesus when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in the middle of the night before. But we read concerning John and Peter that they came back and they followed Jesus to the palace of Annas and Caiaphas. The next morning, John himself was there at the praetorium at the residence of Pilate when Pilate was trying Jesus. John evidently was even in the judgment hall in the residence of Pilate and overheard Pilate's conversation with Jesus. That's why John is able to record it in his gospel account. And John was there when Pilate gave the final decision to have Jesus crucified. It would have been soon after this decision was made, or perhaps soon after Jesus was nailed to the cross, that John thought about the women in Jesus' life. And we may assume that at this point, John decides to go to the women, tell them what's happening with Jesus, and perhaps even encourage them to come to the place where Jesus had been crucified. And the reason we have for thinking this way is the fact that John does not record for us the first two utterances Jesus spoke from the cross. He skips those as he writes the account. And so it's possible that it was exactly during that time that John went to find the women, to fetch them, and that John showed up with these women at the cross of Jesus only after those first two cross words had been spoken. So you can imagine that this way. Jesus is brought outside the city to the place where he is to be crucified. Many of the people are mocking him. They're walking by, wagging their heads and, and mocking him. Even the two thieves on the cross next to Jesus on either side are mocking him with those same kinds of words. And then after Jesus has been hanging on the cross for about two hours, things quiet down a little bit. And then here comes John, bringing a few of the women with him to see Jesus dying on the cross. And this kind of thing was normal. If a person was being crucified, their loved ones would come to the cross to say their goodbyes. Roman soldiers wouldn't let them get too close, lest they try to rescue the person from the cross. But they were allowed to say their goodbyes to their loved ones who were crucified. And so here comes John with a few women with him to the cross of Jesus. You can imagine how somber and how saddening and how confusing this whole event and this whole sight must have been for the disciples and the friends and the women in Jesus' life. They weren't expecting this. This is the day of Passover. This is their vacation time. This is 
the, the feast of Passover, and here they are on the hill Golgotha saying their goodbyes to their beloved master who has just been cursed, being nailed to a tree. In John 19, verse 25, we read, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. Now if you compare that verse with the parallel passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it seems best to understand that there are four women who are mentioned here in verse 25. Some say that there are only three women mentioned, but I would suggest, I would say that there are four women mentioned. First, there is Mary, Jesus' mother. Second, there is Mary's sister, who would be Salome, who appears to be the mother of James and John. So quite possibly, then, James and John are cousins to Jesus. Then, third, there is Mary, the wife of Cleophas. And Cleophas, it is said, is the brother to Joseph, Mary's husband, Mary and Joseph. So, uh, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, would be another aunt to Jesus. And then fourth, you have Mary Magdalene, who had practically become part of the family by this point. So these women are all very close to each other. And Jesus sees these women, he sees John as he brings these women close to the cross of Jesus. And Jesus sees his mother. And there is Jesus hanging on the cross, naked, all his bones showing, his back ripped open by the whipping, struggling to breathe, dying on the cross, giving himself over to be the suffering servant, despised and rejected by the whole world. All of this is part of Jesus' suffering on behalf of his people. Having those women in his life there too is part of Jesus' suffering on behalf of his people. And this is where Jesus speaks these few short words. Looking to Mary, looking from Mary to John, Jesus says, Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, he says, Behold thy mother. What is this? This is suffering. This is painful suffering for Jesus. And I want to point out three ways in which Jesus is suffering in this passage. First of all, this is suffering for Jesus because this is suffering for Mary. I don't want to make too much of the sufferings of Mary because we need to remember that this event is all about Jesus. Jesus is working here to obtain our salvation and we ought not to be distracted by the other people in this event because it's all about Jesus. And yet at the same time, we can understand how Jesus' suffering is amplified in this event by looking at Mary and appreciating how Mary is suffering in this event. This is Jesus' mother. And you mothers know your own love for your children. And what does Mary, the mother of Jesus, see? She sees her son beaten and bloody, hanging on a cross. And there's nothing she can do about it. She sees her son, despised and rejected of men, put to an open shame in front of all the world. This is her son. In congregation, is there any love and any sorrow like the love and sorrow that a mother has for her child? 
This is her son, whom she carried in her womb for nine months, whom she fed and nourished when he was a baby, who she bounced on her lap. This is her son. This is her flesh and blood, in a sense, entirely her own flesh and blood in a very unique way as the Virgin Mary that she was when she had him. And not only all this, but this is her son who was the perfect child in every way. Always he loved his mother perfectly. Always he obeyed her appropriately. Always he was a joy for her spiritual life. How dear to her the ties that bound her to her son. This was her son. And now here she is seeing her own son dying as a common criminal made a reproach. And Mary has her sorrow. Isn't this exactly the sorrow that aged Simeon had spoken to Mary about when Joseph and Mary presented Jesus to the temp- in the temple when he was only 40 days old? You remember what aged Simeon said to Mary? Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many of Israel in Israel and for a sign which shall be spoken against. And then he said this, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And Mary has her sorrow in this event. There is a sword that is piercing through her soul at this moment. But the point here is that Jesus has his sorrow too. This is his mother. We're not going to make too much of this because... Jesus himself refers to Mary by the word woman. And there's purpose in in the way he speaks to her like that. We'll look at that in the second point. But still, this is his mother. And Jesus, in his full humanity, loved his mother perfectly. And he knew what perfect love for your mother feels like. He knew how dear this earthly relationship was He knew the deep ties that bind us together in our families and in our relationships with each other. Jesus experienced these earthly family ties perfectly and fully. And now here Jesus is seeing his mother's sorrow. And he understands it perfectly. He sees it perfectly. He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He understands her sorrow because he's fully man just like she is. And so you can understand how this is sorrow, how this is suffering for Jesus as he sees the sorrow in his mother's eyes. This is suffering for Jesus because this is suffering for Mary. Second, this is suffering for Jesus because Mary doesn't understand why all this is happening. And that adds to the suffering of Jesus. In a sense, I think we can say Mary has been struggling to understand her son ever since the time he was 12 years old. In a sense, we can say Mary has been pondering her son ever since those shepherds visited Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem. And ever since the angel Gabriel told her that she was with child. And there's always been something about her son that she didn't understand. Something to ponder. And now here too, there's something here she doesn't understand. And I think this misunderstanding comes out when you look at the way in which Jesus interacts with Mary. 
not only in this event, but even throughout his earthly ministry, throughout his life, there are a few occasions where you see Jesus interacting with Mary. For one example, remember when Jesus was 12 years old and the family went to Jerusalem to keep the Passover feast. And Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents thought that they had lost him. And when they finally found him, remember what Jesus said to them. Wist ye not, or no, how is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Their 12-year-old son, and that's how he's speaking. That must have been hard for Joseph and Mary to understand, for Mary to understand. Or think of another time early on in Jesus' earthly ministry at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. You remember when they were at that wedding and the host ran out of wine and Mary came to Jesus and suggested that maybe he should perform a miracle so that the host had more wine to give? Remember how Jesus spoke to her then? Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. And there too, Jesus doesn't call her mother, but he calls her woman. In fact, we never read of Jesus calling Mary mother. During his earthly ministry, he always calls her woman. That's striking. We'll look at that in a few moments. And the third time that there's interaction, some kind of interaction between Jesus and his mother, is in the middle of his earthly ministry. He's doing so much. He's giving himself fully for the people. The crowds are so big. And someone comes to Jesus through the crowds and says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers want to speak to you. Remember what Jesus says then? Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And Jesus stretches out his hands toward his disciples and he says, Behold my mother and my brethren. And the point I'm making is that there's always been this little bit of distance between Jesus and Mary. He calls her woman. And she's his mother. And there's this constant reality that Jesus can't be a normal son for Mary. He can't be for Mary what a normal son is to his mother. And we'll get to this in a moment, but let's explain it right now. It's, of course, because Jesus is more than just Mary's son. Jesus is her Savior. And this earthly mother-son relationship needs to fade away. It needs to go away so that the woman-woman-savior relationship can come to its full realization. But the point is, Mary doesn't understand. And none of the disciples understand. And none of the women do. Yes, they believe that Jesus is the Savior. The angel Gabriel told that to Mary right away before Jesus was born. But they don't understand. No one is expecting any of this to happen. Just like when Jesus is raised from the dead, when he rises from the dead, no one's expecting that resurrection either. Because right now they don't understand. It's all senseless. And I think we can say that added to Jesus' suffering. Because he sees and and Mary doesn't understand. And then third, this is suffering for Jesus because, of course, Jesus too, as a son, is in the process of severing his earthly ties. Now, Jesus has hope of a future relationship. But nevertheless, this is a reality at this moment. Jesus, who is fully man, and of course, also fully God, but he is fully man, and he is severing his earthly ties with his mother. 
That's exactly what Jesus is doing in these words that he speaks. We'll get to that in the second point of the sermon. Jesus is severing his earthly ties with his mother. And as we know, one of the most difficult aspects of facing death is the severing of these earthly ties that we love and we enjoy. You know, someone when a loved, sometimes when a loved one is dying, perhaps especially if they are on the younger side, they can say with strong faith, they can say, I'm not afraid to die. I'm ready to meet my Lord. But I'd like to remain here for my wife's sake, for my husband's sake, for the children's sake. Yes, I know to be with the Lord is gain. To be with the Lord is far better. But these earthly ties are still so strong and meaningful. And this is part of what Jesus is experiencing for himself. Jesus tasted death. We know that Jesus tasted all of death for us. But one thing we should understand is that this aspect of death too This severing, this ache, and this pain of severing earthly ties, Jesus also tasted and experienced that for us too. Just think, if Jesus really wanted to, he could have come down from the cross. He could have come down from the cross not only to silence the mockers, but also to comfort his mother, even if it's just for a short little embrace, and then he gets right back up on the cross again. But no, Jesus doesn't do that. And in not being able to do that, Jesus suffered. Oh, yes, he must be about his father's business. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is why he came to earth. Yes, Mary raised him as her child, but he was always more than just her child. He's the savior of God's people, and nothing can get in the way of him doing his father's business. And so what is Jesus doing in this moment? What he's doing is this. He's willingly, freely laying down his earthly sonship. Oh yes, he loves his mother. And yes, here too, Jesus has to make the conscious, deliberate choice to continue that path of suffering. Laying down his life for the sheep. And now it involves also this ache and this pain. The the severing of his earthly ties. This too belongs to Jesus' suffering, Jesus' experience of hell. The the punishment for sin, that's what I mean. Death, Jesus tasting death. So I think we see how this is suffering for Jesus. Painful suffering. Well, having looked at Jesus' painful suffering, we can now look more carefully at those striking words of verses 26 and 27. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by, whom he loved, John, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And by the way, Jesus is not saying, Woman, look at me. Woman, behold thy son. See me. See my misery. See my shame. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Mary's already looking at him. Jesus is telling Mary to look at John as her son. What is Jesus doing here? Well, as we already said, Jesus is severing his earthly ties. But now, why that language? Woman, behold thy son. 
To our ears, that might sound a little rude. To call your mother woman? Children, we don't talk to our mothers that way, do we? We don't call them women. But Jesus is not being rude here. In fact, Jesus is very intentional with his words. Now, some say Jesus speaks like this in order to soften his mother's pain, right? He doesn't call her mother because if he called her mother, that might, that might add pain to the sorrow she feels. As if calling her woman is somehow less intimate, less meaningful, and therefore less painful. Well, however true that may be, that's not the main reason Jesus speaks these words. That's not the point. Jesus uses the word woman for the exact same reason that he uses the word woman way back at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. Jesus uses the word woman in order to emphasize that her motherhood may not interfere with the work that God has given Jesus to do. As Jesus does the work his heavenly Father has given him to do, Mary may not now come to the foot of the cross and interfere with that work and try to do so on the basis of who she is as his mother. She may not do that. In addition, Jesus uses the word woman in order to emphasize that Mary isn't just Jesus' mother And in this very moment, Jesus is not viewing her as his mother. But Mary is a child of God. Mary is one of the elect of God for whom Jesus, as the suffering servant, must suffer and die on the cross. And so Mary, as the mother of Jesus, must fade. It must fade away so that Mary as a member of the church of Jesus Christ, the bride of Jesus Christ, might come into focus. So Jesus uses that word mother in order to emphasize that Jesus himself is in fact her Lord. And she is his daughter. And he is her savior and her master, her high priest and her king. This earthly relationship must fade away and give place to the spiritual, heavenly relationship. This earthly tie that binds Jesus to Mary as son to mother, that's fading away. That was only a momentary reality in history. And I think that's worth emphasizing. I think we intuitively understand that, but it's worth explaining. We understand when we all get to heaven, Mary is not going to be the queen sitting on the throne in heaven simply because Jesus is her son and Jesus, of course, is the prince of heaven. It won't be because Jesus is prince that Mary, as his mother, now has a special spot all to herself in heaven. No, that special relationship of mother to son is ending right here at the foot of the cross. Jesus is ending it. In heaven, Mary will be with us, we might say. Mary is going to be one of the 144,000, one of that innumerable throng that is gathered around the throne of the Lamb, bowing down with all of us, worshiping the King. That's where she will be, with us. And right here, before Jesus enters the three hours of darkness on the cross, Jesus is communicating this reality to her. And when Jesus sees Mary again, it's going to be a new, different relationship. You might say that's the exact same thing that John experienced. John won't be Jesus' cousin in heaven. 
Those relationships fall away so that something higher, something better can take its place. Remember how John responds in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees the glorified Christ. Did John lay his bosom on the chest of Jesus like he did in the upper room at the last Passover? No. But John fell before Jesus as as a dead man. The relationship has changed. And that's what Jesus is teaching Mary right here. In fact, it's very similar to what Jesus goes on to teach Mary Magdalene on Easter Sunday. Remember when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, touch me not. Don't touch me the same way that you touched me before my crucifixion. Because those earthly ties have faded away. Something greater has taken its place. I am your glorified Savior. I am your glorified Lord. And you are my people whom I redeemed with my own shed blood. That's what's going on here. And in similar fashion, it's true of us. Our earthly marriages will not continue into heaven. And after we die, that marriage bond is dissolved. And and of course, we will not experience that earthly bond of marriage the same way again in heaven. Because in heaven, they are not married, nor are they given in marriage. But in heaven, we are brothers and sisters. Our relationship will be different. And all of that is what Jesus is teaching Mary when he calls her woman. But now, Jesus goes further. It's not as if Jesus just leaves Mary with nothing and just calls her woman. But Jesus now goes on and says, Woman, behold thy son. Jesus says, I will supply a substitute for you, Mary. Someone to take my place. Someone to take care for you as your son. And that was very fitting. Think of it. A woman in Mary's position was in a very vulnerable position. It seems safe to assume that Mary was a widow. We don't read of Joseph in all of these events. She's in her late 40s, early 50s. Who's going to care for her? It appears that up to this point, Jesus' own siblings don't believe that he is the Christ. So who's going to take care of Mary? Who will take care of Mary in the way that Jesus wants her to be taken care of? John. John will take care of her. According to Jesus' own perfect wisdom, John is the best choice for this matter. Woman, behold thy son. And then to John, he says, behold thy mother. And with these words, Jesus is giving John a charge. He's giving John a commission. He says, John, she is your mother. Take care of her as such. And here again, we see Jesus as the Lord, as the master, who has the authority to do this kind of thing, to tell John to care for Mary as his mother. And then what do we read? What does John do after hearing those words? We read, And from that hour, from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. And the idea, we may gather, is that in that same hour, John took Mary away from the foot of the cross and took her back to his home, or wherever that was, to spare her more sufferings. And then John comes back, 
to the cross at the end of the three hours of darkness. That's why you don't read about the three hours of darkness in John's account. He skips right over it because he was probably busy attending to other things, taking care of Jesus' mother, taking care of Mary. And in all these things, what we see is that Jesus is caring for his mother. That's what's going on here. He's fulfilling the fifth commandment. He's honoring father and mother. He's taking care of his mother in her time of need, his earthly mother. And this is just another way in which Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness on behalf of his people. And this is all part of Jesus' love for God, right? He's doing all of this as unto the Father. He knows the Father's will for him, and now he's making these arrangements, taking care of his mother in these last moments. As the Apostle John writes, as John himself writes in 1 John 4 verse 20, He that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? The point is, in this event, Jesus is loving his mother perfectly, providing for her need, even as he continues focused on his work as the Christ, laying down his life for his people. So Jesus perfectly fulfills both tables of the law. And at the same time, he gives us an astonishing example of what it is to keep the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. Well, in all these things, we see who Jesus is as our compassionate Savior. And that's where I want to end with this afternoon, this evening. And as we consider who Jesus is as our compassionate Savior, I have three things to point out. Right? We're looking at the heart of Jesus. I think this is very fitting to consider this. First, Jesus is a compassionate Savior because we see again that Jesus can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have the same earthly ties that Jesus had. We have the same real family experiences that Jesus went through. When a loved one dies, and we could expand on this, of course, with his relationship to his brothers and his sisters. But just focus on this. When a loved one dies and those earthly ties are broken and we feel the pain and the heartache, beloved, look at Jesus. He understands. He understands. And it's not only that. It's not only that when it comes to death, but but your day-to-day experiences when you're called by God to walk a difficult way in your everyday life, a difficult way that means denying yourself the happiness of being with family because you have to go to work every day, five days away, five days a week, six days a week, and you can't spend all your time with your families. And, and you're separated from loved ones, maybe because you've moved to a different location. Or maybe you're drafted into the army. And in all of these cases, you have that ache of your soul this sense of loss, right? We feel that sorrow of not being able to be with all our loved ones all of the time because we're doing the Lord's will. Beloved, Jesus understands. He understands. In his own earthly ministry, Jesus emphasized the cost of following him. He says, If any man come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. 
And those are strong words that we have to come face to face with. And we do that when we are living our life and we are following as Jesus' disciples and we feel these things to be true. But my point right now is a passage like the one that we've looked at this evening shows us that Jesus applies that same standard to himself. And he understands that feeling. Not even Jesus' beloved mother can stand in his way of doing the Father's will. In all your heartaches and sorrows and your self-denials for the kingdom of heaven's sake, always remember, your Jesus understands. He's been there. And that's a real comfort. That's a real comfort to us as God's people. We have a high priest who understands and who knows exactly the grace we need and who has access to the Father to receive that grace and share it to us, his people. So that first of all. Second, Jesus is a compassionate Savior because we see here in a fresh way how Jesus has overcome every aspect of the curse of death. Jesus entered into every phase of our death, tasting the fullness of death as he alone could taste it. He not only endured hell, but even this. He also experienced and endured the separation and severing of family ties that death brings with it. Jesus severed his earthly ties with his mother, and he he endured that as part of his suffering, so that he could remove also this sting, this aspect of the sting of death too. And Jesus also encourages us, because when he had to do it, he could also look ahead, right? He could look ahead at how his relationship with his mother was going to be raised to a better, higher relationship. That that communion that he would have with her in glory in his father's house that he was that he is going to enjoy with all his people for whom he died and that's true for us too when we have to say goodbye to a loved one we know that because of what Jesus did there is a higher relationship we can look forward to a more blessed relationship fellowship with each other in glory before the throne of the lamb fellowshipping with god and each other in sinless glory. Third, we see Jesus as a compassionate Savior here because we see how Jesus is doing all of this voluntarily. He's doing it all freely. He didn't have to do these things, but He willingly did it because He loves the Father and because He loves us. And Jesus speaks these last words to his mother, knowing full well what's coming right after this. What's coming next, beloved? Those three hours of darkness, where the vials of God's wrath will be poured out upon him, and he must tread the winepress of the wrath of God utterly alone. And in that moment, No one may be a comfort to him. No one may assist him. All human help, even the gentle presence of his mother, 
must be taken away that he might bear alone the full cup of God's wrath against sin. That's what's coming next, beloved. The three hours of darkness. And you look at this in the light of that too, then what do you say? What a Savior we have, congregation, in every respect, from every angle, every verse, every line that we get to consider in Scripture reveals to us an amazing, astonishing Savior. What a merciful and faithful high priest who can be, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Rest, beloved, in the love and care of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Rest in God's love that God designed all of this. He brought Mary to Jesus at the foot of the cross, and God was doing all of this, not only that Jesus might might experience the fullness of death, but so that you and I this evening might have this message communicated to us, that this is how much God loves you, that he came in the flesh and suffered even all these things willingly for you and me. Rest in these things and then give God the glory for his amazing salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word, so rich, so beautiful. We thank Thee that Thou hast worked it in our hearts to sit here and, and hearts that can receive it. Thy love for us is an amazing love. We thank Thee for Jesus. We thank Thee that we see from another point of view how He understands and He so unconditionally loves us. Strengthen our faith through this preaching and may it indeed shape our hearts and shape our lives to thy name's glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.